Hello, and welcome to Ready, Set, Retire, an audio guide packed with information to help you achieve a successful retirement. I'm your co-host, John McComb, and it's my pleasure to join Lori Pinkowski every two weeks to talk about financial and estate planning, travel, hobbies, and so much more. Whether you are planning for retirement or already living your retirement dreams, Ready, Set, Retire is for you. And Lori, one of the many benefits of working with a great financial advisor like yourself is your ability to help families understand when to hire an outside party to help with the transition of their wealth. We've had a lot of conversations over the years regarding wills, uh, power of attorney, the importance of planning ahead. However, some families may require additional planning to ensure the organization of their estate and their family's wealth is protected. This is true in a situation where there is a beneficiary with a disability. That's why we're looking forward today to having Jeff White as our guest to talk about estate planning for beneficiaries with disabilities. That's right, John. A big focus of estate planning is ensuring wealth is passed on to dependents in a tax-efficient and effective manner. Families with dependents with disabilities face additional challenges such as ongoing care and really, you know, ensuring that their financial well-being is preserved over a very long period of time. And planning for a family member with special needs, the family's estate objectives can differ from other families. And I've just come across this situation so many times that we thought it would be a good idea to uh, get on air here and bring on a special guest who specializes in this area so that he can really shed some light on this and give us some insightful information on how families can set up their lives, their future estate planning situation for the future with a professional. So today, to talk more about estate planning for beneficiaries with disabilities, we're joined by Jeff White, a lawyer at Jeff W. White Law Corporation and Clark Wilson LLP. Jeff has over 28 years of experience in wills, estate, and trust matters. He has litigated estate and trust matters at all levels of court, including the B.C. Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court of Canada. He is a past chair of the B.C. Law Foundation and has held leadership roles with the National Canadian Bar Association and has been recognized by Best Lawyers Canada for trusts and estate law since 2019. Wow, there's a lot to be said about you, Jeff. Definitely be working together in the future. I need you <laughs> for clients of mine. And so welcome, and again, thanks for being here. Super excited to talk to you today about this very relevant topic for so many families out there. So, Jeff, what is your firm's main focus in terms of servicing clients? Sure, John, and, and thanks uh, to both uh, you and Laurie for having me here. I'm happy to be here to speak with you about this. It, it is a very important uh, area. So our firm is probably one of the few in British Columbia that it focuses exclusively on estates law. And so our areas of practice in that include the planning, so getting ready, getting documents put together, uh, administration, so after a person has passed away, and unfortunately, when things go wrong, um, we get involved uh, in the litigation for families that are struggling um, to try and resolve what their respective rights are um, to, to deal with that. So we get lots of referrals to help clean up uh, other files too. Uh, but within even that area of narrow focus, we do have some other more uh, specific focuses. And one of those is working with uh, families who have loved ones with disabilities uh, that are going to be involved in that planning. 
And we've probably been honored and fortunate enough to do that with probably four or 500 families over the years. That's great, Jeff. So what are the important things you think that uh, people need to consider kind of prior to creating an effective estate plan to accommodate the needs of a beneficiary with a disability? And, and what are some of those disabilities that you've seen? Because there's a wide range as well. Absolutely. And so the you know the plans for everyone approaching estate planning are similar in that it's important to think about what are the goals that we're trying to accomplish? What's the life that we're trying to create when you are gone, when you're not there to provide that support that you do provide? And it's about finances, of course. That's one of the traditional focuses for this. But it's also about decision making, particularly for families that have loved ones that have disabilities. There's a lot that you do to support their decision making and help them uh, keep themselves protected. And it's really important to understand what the specific nature is of the disability, what the challenges are that they have, what the vulnerabilities are. And so the focus that we look at is before we start talking about finances and law and trusts and things like that, it's what is your vision to create a safe and secure future for your family. So what are some of the main challenges for people with children with disabilities when it comes to developing an estate plan? What's different about how they approach the issue than uh, someone who doesn't have a child with a disability? So I'd say, John, that the main issue is probably the complexity. Clients sometimes are, and friends often ask me, you know, what's the most complex stuff you deal with? And they're expecting me to talk about, you know, the very, very wealthy families that we deal with that have offshore assets and companies and trusts and all kinds of things. And really, that's not the most complicated. There is a lot of moving parts there, but it's all rational. It all makes sense. You can apply the rules and get to a result as to what they should do. In the area of disability, there is an intersection of trust law and tax law, estates law, and then the disability entitlements. And they don't always sync together very well. And so it creates a very complex network of decisions and factors that have to be considered. On top of that, we're trying to protect the person who has vulnerabilities and preserve their ability to get support throughout that program. And so when faced with that degree of complexity, I think one of the biggest hurdles I find that families face is that they're trying to get the perfect solution. They're trying to get the thing that feels perfect for them. And what I always encourage families to think about is setting perfection is sometimes too high of a standard. We want to do the best that we can. We want to get the plan that's better for you now. So if you're struggling to pick a trustee or you're struggling to pick a guardian, part of our job is to help you find what's the best solution for where you are now so that we can elevate you to a more safe and secure plan while you create the space to think about what you do down the road. Don't let the pursuit of perfection cause you from at least taking the steps that can put things into a better place now. Yeah, I think so many families, it's just, they feel it's overwhelming to make all of these future decisions because they don't know how it's going to look when they're no longer here. And so when a family is considering having a trust and going that route, choosing a trustee to manage the assets for a beneficiary with disabilities, how would one go about even figuring out who that's going to be? I mean, you can pay external people to do that. You have family members possibly, but it's a lot, I know, (laughs) for family members to take on that role and can cause some other issues there too. So what's your thought on choosing a trustee? I mean, that's an excellent observation. It's one of the things that our clients work hardest on is trying to find. And one of the things we spend most of our time doing is helping them go through that analysis. So we start from the perspective of what is that trustee going to do? And in particular, in families where there's a loved one with a disability, this is a very different role than just a basic executor who comes in, grabs everything up, deals with the taxes, deals with the debts, divides it up, pays it out, and is done. 
hopefully within maybe a year or two or possibly three. These are usually very long-term ongoing relationships um, that immerse that person into this area of complexity that we've already talked about. So what we do is help clients really have a better view of what that trustee is going to do. And that helps us identify what you know what we're looking for. So we're looking for certain skills in terms of management and decision-making and awareness, temperament, being a, a calm person, but also being a diligent person. We don't want things getting put off to the side of a desk. If you sometimes have the perfect person, but they're really busy, they're not actually the perfect person. The other part about it is, as I mentioned, these are long-term trusts often that come out of these estate plans. And so we're looking for someone who's going to be there for the long term, or at least that there's a good plan for what happens if uh, if something happens to them along the way. Well, and that uh, leads into the next question, because none of us has a, has a crystal ball or can predict the future. So what happens if an appointed trustee is not able to assume the role or determines later on that they can't take on the role at that point? Yeah, it's a great question, John, because you're right. I mean, we do all that hard work to pick a trustee. And then I give my clients the bad news that we have to do it again, because uh, we have to think about who's going to be the backup to that person if they can't do it. And so I encourage clients to go through that process. We like to have at least two people because you're right. We just never know um, what's going to happen, even if we're picking someone that's younger. And so it's always the client's choice and preference that we put into the documents. Uh, but sometimes it's too hard to predict that into the future. And so then what we do is we focus on the mechanisms. So who should be able to pick the successor trustee if the current trustee can't continue and we don't have someone already in mind? Should that be the trustee themselves? And should we give them wide discretion? Or should we say, if it can't be you, uh, then perhaps it has to be you know a certain range of people that you would pick as your successor. And the other thing we do is we want to make sure that it's well-defined in the will itself and is the simplest possible process. We don't want to have to go to court to make that change if we don't have to. And there's ways that we can design the will to do that. You're right, Jeff. Nobody wants to go to court. So the more you're organized and have all of this set out in your will or in the trust, uh, the better it's going to be for your family. That's for sure. So in your experience, what impact, if any, will there be on the relationship between the trustee and the disabled beneficiary? And I guess this could be maybe the case when there's a sibling who may be elected to be the trustee. And, and I've seen that situation unfold sometimes not so well, depending on where that beneficiary is at. You know, do they have the ability to make decisions and they just are not being given <laughs> the privilege of making decisions on their own behalf because perhaps they're not good with money or whatever the case may be. So what's your experience with that? So, Lori, you have hit the thorniest part of picking a trustee. <laughs> it is natural for clients to think that, you know, the sibling should be the one to do it. They're the ones that are similar age. They're going to be around. They know them best. Parents have confidence and trust in them. They tick a lot of the boxes to be able to do it. The challenge that we look at is there are some other boxes, though, that have to be thought of. And one of the main things is when we pick a trustee, by definition, we're saying that we need someone else to be involved to help make decisions because sometimes that trustee may need to make a decision that is different from what the beneficiary would want. Sometimes they may have to say no. If the beneficiary or the friend, air quotes, of the beneficiary has decided that what they really need is a big new luxury car or uh, to start up a band or you know do any sort of types of things that I've heard over the years, um, that is probably not the most prudent use of the money uh, for the long term, somebody's going to have to say no. 
And if they were expecting to have a family Thanksgiving dinner the next week, uh, it's going to create a tension. And really, siblings are the people we spend most of our lives with. They are probably the family connection that we are going to have throughout our lifetime. They're there when we're born. They're all the way there probably until close to when we pass away. It's different from parents, spouses, even our own children. So it's a really important relationship that I always caution clients not to jeopardize for the sake of putting that person in as a trustee. Sometimes there are better options to provide a more neutral decision maker that can allow the sibling to have the comfort of knowing things are being taken care of. All I have to do is be a loving and supporting sibling. I can sit there at Thanksgiving dinner and nod my head while you tell me how terrible it is that you couldn't get the car all the time knowing, boy, I'm glad that that's the decision that was made. And it can get more complicated too, because remember, when I ask my clients, who should the money go to if your loved one with a disability passes away um, and doesn't have children of their own? Well, it's going to go to the sibling. And so I've just created an inherent conflict of interest that even a best well-meaning sibling can face the allegation that, well, you're just saying no because you're trying to make sure there's money left over for you later. And that can really taint the relationship and make it difficult. So I do suggest to clients that it is important to at least consider the value of uh, neutral trustees in these situations. I have to agree with you. And I always say I'm in the business of telling clients the worst possible case scenarios and lawyers are even, even more that way. And the reason is, is because we've seen so much. I always say families are usually not made of rainbows and butterflies. And so there are decisions like this can lead to and have negative impact for your family. So that's why thinking long and hard about who that trustee is going to be is so important. And Jeff, there's a question that comes to mind because people with disabilities are able to, are entitled to provincial and federal disability benefits. So is there a way to leave an inheritance within a will that doesn't impact those government programs? Absolutely. That's one of the key things that we focus on, and it is super important. There's lots of other issues in the planning, but definitely that's one that has to be gotten right. So we do have, a, as a society, a system that says we want everyone to fully participate in our community. And if they happen to have a disability that prevents them from doing that, we want to give them support. And so that system is in British Columbia called Employment and Income Assistance for Persons with Disabilities, but it has eligibility tests. So one is the medical test. But there's also a financial test. And that financial test has an asset element to it and an income element to it. So if you're over 18 and you meet the medical tests, you also have to meet those financial tests. And the fact is an inheritance of more than $100,000 will put the person offside for the asset test and disqualify them from the benefits. And it's not just the provincial monthly amount that they get. It's eligibility for other programs that frankly, they can't even buy their way into if they don't have that status. So it's really important to keep that to maintain the structure and the security for that person. So what we can do is take that inheritance and wrap it up into a protective trust that's been carefully designed to keep them eligible for the assistance. How does that apply to, say, a registered disability savings plan? Because I think the the upper limit is $200,000, but that money can't be withdrawn until the person reaches the age of 60. That's right. So how do you balance those two? Yeah, John. So there are exempt assets for the asset test. And so one of them is the RDSP. The other one is a house. Another one is a vehicle. Um, so there are ways that you could move an inheritance into those products. But one of the things you have to remember about the RDSPs is as wonderful as they are, they do have limitations. And so one of them is it is designed to be a like a long-term pension. 
And when you put money into that, you get back these wonderful credits. Um, so uh, you can almost do a three to one matching right off the bat. So you put in $1,500, the government will put in $4,500, assuming that you meet the uh, financial tests. And you can do that for 20 years. Um, there's no other investment where you can get that kind of return. But it comes with severe restrictions, which are you can't access that money for 10 years after the last grant was given without having severe clawbacks. So if we try to put all of an inheritance into an RDSP, that's great. We've kept the person eligible, but we have to recognize we're not going to be able to get that money back for a long time. And so in situations where we need to get access to that money earlier, we need a different vehicle than just the RDSP. But also, certainly in the Vancouver area, uh, it is not unusual for inheritances to be quite a bit more uh, than the 200000 An RDSP is always one of the tools that we use, but the trust is often the main tool. And the common trust structure many people use for individuals with disabilities is a Henson Trust. So maybe we could talk a little bit about that and why is that so effective? Or do you believe that is the route to go for many? It, it absolutely is the route to go. So the Henson Trust, uh, just a bit of background, comes from a family named the Hensons that lived in Ontario back in the 80s. They set up one of these types of trusts. And the key aspect of the trust is that it's what we call a discretionary trust. So that means that the money gets set aside. It's exclusively for the use of the beneficiary who has the disability, but it is entirely up to the trustee to decide when and how to use that money. So the result of that is that the beneficiary has no legal enforceable entitlement to the money, so they don't have to count it as an asset. So for the purposes of the asset test, it counts as zero. But it also allows the trustee the discretion to decide when to release that money and use it. So the Hensons uh, did that, and in Ontario, the Ontario government challenged them. And they took it to the Court of Appeal and were successful in defending the right to do that. Incidentally, John, you mentioned the Supreme Court of Canada case that I was involved in. It was a new challenge to that. So about four years ago, the uh, Metro Vancouver Housing Authority uh, tried to challenge a similarly designed trust here in BC. And we ended up taking it up all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada in Ottawa. And gratefully, were successful. And uh, the court on a seven to two decision decided that, yes, these trusts do work. And they affirmed the principle that, you know, society provides a base level of support, but these discretionary trusts are important to encourage families to supplement that base level of support, simply because we know that base level of support simply doesn't get it done. You know, in Vancouver, the amount that you're allowed for housing per month is currently $375. Uh, they're going to increase it, I think the rumor is, to about $500. But I still challenge you to tell me how many people you have to put in a studio apartment to make that affordable. So it's good to see that we have that affirmation uh, from the Supreme Court. That's fantastic that you achieved that and, and got it through. But, you know, it is surprising that they haven't increased things like uh, the amount for housing, that it's so out of date, you know, and that's what worries families, right? Like, how are they going to take care of their loved one? And especially if whoever's setting these kinds of rules or amounts isn't up to date. And that's why you really need to have a professional looking at this for you. And that's, again, for us, every time we're doing that financial estate plan, you know, we're bringing in professionals such as yourself to really handle the details and get people organized because people feel so much more at ease when they know that their family or their loved ones, those with a disability or even not, are going to be taken care of and they have everything structured properly for the end of their days. And that's so important. 
Jeff, other than trusts, uh, what are some of the other effective tools can be used to support beneficiaries with a disability? Well, certainly, John, you've identified the Registered Disability Savings Plan as well. I think almost everybody in this scenario should look at that program and take advantage of it as a parallel tool to use. Uh, but the other thing that we talk about is decision making. Um, so right now, a lot of parents are able to very much support their loved ones, their children, even their adult children in making decisions through informal means. But as soon as the parents are gone, that all changes because the deference that's given to parents to do that, for example, having joint accounts or, or other methods, that, that kind of disappears. And so we really need to think about who and how will decisions get made for your loved one with a disability after you're gone. And there are some good tools that we can use to do that. There's something in BC that's unique to BC called a Section 7 Representation Agreement that's like a power of attorney. And it allows someone who has more limited capacity to select someone to help make decisions. So we often encourage clients that, you know, a good estate plan is dealing with their things, but also encouraging their loved one with a disability to put something like that in place, a Section 7 representation agreement, to make sure that we know who's going to be helping them with decisions after the parents can't do it anymore. That is very good advice, actually. I haven't had that brought into a meeting, actually. So that, I, I think, is new for a lot of people, and I think that's a very good idea. So, again, we're helping a lot of our clients invest those RDSPs, right? We're setting up uh, those accounts and managing the investments that are within them. Can you explain maybe to our listeners, I know you touched on some of it, but what are some of the pros and cons of RDSPs? I mean, we talked about the overall amount and also the inability to access the funds. And, and a lot of people may not be aware of those uh, those rules. So again, some of the pros as well as cons. Absolutely. So uh, pros is that it is a brilliant way to accumulate a fairly substantial amount of funds with assistance from the government. So up to $1,500 a year that you or your loved one put in gets matched by $4,500, up to $4,500 if you meet the criteria by the government. And you can do that 20 years in a row. So after 20 years, you've put in 30,000, the government's put in 90 and that can grow and grow and grow. And as John mentioned, it's, it's exempt. So it does not disqualify the person either as an asset or the income that comes out. The downside is what we talked about, which is that the government doesn't want people just all of a sudden scooping back the money that they've put in. So they put restrictions on it. And uh, the primary restriction is that if you try to take money out within 10 years of having received that government money, uh, there's a clawback and it's pretty severe. It's a three to one clawback. So really, you have to think of these as like pensions. Um, you have to kind of project out, we're going to do 20 years of contributions. We're going to wait 10 years. And then we're going to start drawing this out. So depending on when you started the plan and retroactivity, it's really kind of a 30-year plan. Brilliant one and one that works really well uh, and was really designed to deal with the phenomena uh, that persons with disabilities are having longer life expectancies and are outliving their parents, um, which you know uh, generations ago wasn't always the case and is more frequent now. And so it's a great tool to do that, but it's not the only thing. We need the trust for your inheritance. And to pick up on what John and I were talking about, you need someone who will be able to make decisions about that RDSP, because that could end up being a couple hundred thousand dollars. Uh, and a bank's not just going to let anybody walk in on the street and do that. They're going to want to have some formal legal authority like the representation agreement. How does a client's RRSP or uh, RIF fit into this kind of planning? Great question, John. And it's a great opportunity. So the other end of this is what we are typically doing as parents, which is building up our own RSPs or RIFs. 
to provide for us in our retirement. And as you know, when we draw those out, we get taxed on them at whatever our current rates are. Uh, but there's this big giant hit at the end. So it rolls over between spouses. You can transfer it without tax if one spouse dies. But when the last spouse dies, whatever is left in that RSP or RIF is one big giant paycheck. And so you're going to be probably paying top rates on a hundred or $200,000 RSP or RIF to have 80,000 tax or even more. So one of the great things that's available to families that meet these definitions is we can take that RSP or RIF and roll it over to the trust that's been created for your loved one and not have it taxed. Not have it taxed until they pull it out in their hands. And their income is likely to be quite low and we can spread it over their lifetime. So now we've got uh, you know a $200,000 RIF that was going to be taxed at 80 or 90,000 that we can take the full 200 put it into the trust for your loved one they draw it over their lifetime and maybe never pay any tax so we've added $80,000 of net value to your family to be able to do it and it's just careful planning that can take advantage of that opportunity. I mean, that's just with a $200,000 riff. I mean, we've got a lot of clients that have 500000 or or even a million. Yes. So there's a lot of tax with a CRA. And of course, most people set it up as, you know, two spouses. It rolls over to each other. But this is very important, again, when there is only one spouse left, this type of planning for sure. So what is something that is often missed, do you think, in many estate plans uh, that have a beneficiary with a disability? Is there something that kind of sticks out in your mind that you go, I wish everybody knew to do this? So as I've said to you, we've, we've kind of done this for 28 years with lots and lots of families. And so we're seeing them not just when we do the planning, but we also see them when parents pass away and we're actually implementing the plan. And the thing that we've learned over the years is that there is an immediate need for financial assistance at that point in time. And if all we've done is drafted a will and we're waiting for the probate process to complete, we've just created a whole bunch of financial stress at a time where there's also grief and family stress. And probate in this province can easily take four to five months for the courts to get through. And so the question I always ask my clients is, if something happened to the two of you tomorrow, does anyone have the financial capacity in your family to take care of all the financial needs that your loved one would have and all the things that you're doing until we get that grant of probate? And if that's going to create pressure or stress, let's take a look at ways that we can use things like life insurance or tax-free savings accounts or other beneficiary designations to get some funds that are immediately available to cover us off for those four to five months. Um, and I can tell you that where we've done that and plans have implemented it's a marked difference in terms of how people feel and what they can focus on, which is what they should focus on, is the family and the grief, rather than wondering about who's going to pay you know, the utility bill or who's going to pay for uh, getting the son back and forth to the regular things that he does. Jeff, incredibly informative, and we appreciate you joining us. If our listeners would like to learn more about your services, how do they get a hold of you? Sure. So I'd be happy to, to speak to folks. So one way would be, uh, of course, talk to Lori. She is going to be your central person for planning things. And almost all of our clients are referrals from planners like Lori who are taking that long-term focus with you and spend a lot of time with you. I'm kind of like the place kicker in football. I come in and solve immediate uh, technical solutions, and then I get back off the field and let the quarterback do the work, uh, which is where Lori fits in. So I think that'd be my first point of encouragement. But then in terms of contacting me, I am available by email. So G White, uh, W-H-I-T-E at B-C, that's 
like British Columbia, BC Estate Law, E-S-T-A-T-E-L-A-W dot com. And my phone number is 604-924-6599. And so I'd be happy to take any calls or review things with you. Now, a successful estate plan for disabled beneficiaries starts with finding an experienced, trustworthy team of legal and financial advisors with whom you can explain your beneficiary's needs. You know, every client or family situation is unique in its own way. And so it's so important, as I've always said, to have that team of professionals around you. Accountant, lawyer, financial advisor, portfolio manager, financial planner, and and your team of professionals should be talking to each other to give you the best possible advice. They're on your side to ensure that you are organized throughout retirement as well as at the end of your days and to make sure that what's most important to you, your family, your loved ones, that they'll be taken care of for years to come. So again, thanks, Jeff. It was very insightful. I learned a lot and uh, I look forward to working with you further in the future. Thanks so much, Lori and John. Now, before you go, uh, we always like to ask our guest for a quote that kind of sums up what we've been talking about. So what do you have for us? So this is a quote. I don't know who the original author is of it. It's used by a group that I do a lot of work with called the Planned Lifetime Advocacy Network that works with a lot of families with disabilities. And it's not necessarily a happy quote, but I think it's a very inspiring and motivating quote. And it's this. Every time someone dies, a library burns. And so I know my clients have unique information inside them about themselves, but also about their loved one. And I consider it my job to help them capture that information and translate it as their legacy for their families so that that library doesn't burn, that we can keep that information moving forward. Yeah, it's great. Information is everything, especially when planning for the future. So that is a great quote. And thank you so much, Jeff. Thanks, John, again. I look forward to talking to you as well in a few weeks from now. We will catch up again in a couple of weeks right here on Ready, Set, Retire. Thanks, Lori. Thank you. And that's a wrap for this week's edition of Ready, Set, Retire. If you're interested in learning more or have any questions, please don't hesitate to call Lori and her team at Pinkowski Wealth Management, 604-695-LORI, 604-695-5674. For Lori Pinkowski, I'm John McComb. Thanks for listening and join us again in two weeks for another edition of Ready, Set, Retire. The comments and opinions expressed in this podcast are the result of work done by Lori Pinkowski. They may differ from the opinion of Canaccord Genuity's research and should not be considered as representative of Canaccord's beliefs, opinions, or recommendations. All views expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and do not constitute an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management is a division of Canaccord Genuity Corp., member of the CIPF and IROC.